in the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see your bite. Let me see your scars. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to All We Hear is Purple. We're the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the internet. I'm Andrew Berg. Remember to subscribe, rate, review on Podcast Stitcher or whatever. And with me, as always, is Gaby Lucas. Gaby, what's going on? Hi. I'm magically, magically not hungover from uh, about six days of seeing people I hadn't seen in three years for for a wedding so for that i would like to thank not only god but also jesus <laughs> it sounds pretty I, I had, yeah I mean, it's, it else, is yeah. a very beautiful thing six canadians right i mean mm-hmm. probably even more challenging plus and brits yeah oh, which god. in the words in the words of chris o'dowd you guys drink like you don't want to live yeah. but then granted we're not in college anymore so we're we're a little bit less uh willfully um death wish having well you say that but I, we have some friends from london and my wife showed me a facebook post from one of them uh i think on saturday afternoon so it was saturday night for them this is somebody about my age mid 30s mm-hmm. uh and she posted something like girls night out and it was her and two other women at a bar with roughly 30 martini glasses empty mm-hmm. in front of them yeah so i mean they're well through college age but they're mm-hmm. english and yeah. The last time that either of us drank with them, the guy wouldn't let us have dinner because he said eating is cheating. That's very British. Yeah. God, I miss them already. Yeah. So, well, well, <laughs> while we're talking about uh, drinking, we can talk about being <laughs> being of cirrhosis. Yeah. No. Uh, from the first uh, Husky football game of the year, which is a, a drinking holiday for a lot of people, but some of us, you know, very take it very very seriously. We would never uh, dull in, dull our senses for watching the football games uh, or not. Let's talk a little bit about what we've heard so far, observed, seen from uh, the fall camp so far. It seems like there have been, you know, we haven't been there for all of the practices or anything, but we know people who have been or have read things from people who have been at a lot of the practices enough that we're starting to see some themes emerge. It seems like maybe the clearest theme of all is that Dylan Morris has really put the clamps on the quarterback position. He's continued the progress that we saw at the end of the first freshman, you know, whatever it was of a season had a really good spring game. It seems like this year he's set up for even better things. He's got great skill position players around him. The offensive line has a lot of stability. What are your predictions? Not necessarily statistical predictions, but what do you kind of expect to see out of Morris this year? Yeah, I've been kind of thinking about this and I, I, I know there's been a lot of comparisons to, Browning, which I don't think is, um, I don't think it's inaccurate, but I think it is incomplete. But the more I think of it, he's like, he's like um, the if he's the rich man's Jake Browning, as far as I, that's my um, take on the scenario right now. And I'm just excited to see kind of that. For one, he has better arm strength than he gets credit for because people look at someone who's six feet tall and go, rah, 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 he can't. I don't know what that's an impression of. He can't throw it, but um, yeah, it's, uh, the Stadler you know. and Waldo for things. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> yeah, if his arm was any weaker, he'd be a bull. Yeah, um, ah! and he <laughs> and like obviously he doesn't have an Eason arm, but like nobody does. Um, and but I think I'm I'm really I think I'm excited to see somebody who has the poise and and poison awareness that you know you often we associated kind of that anticipation with Jake Browning, but I think. The poison awareness combined with lower body kind of that extra athleticism and mobility that he showed last year um i, I remember after that first oregon state game us talking about the one moment where jacob easton or jake browning would have run backwards and we see dylan morris run forwards and around and manipulate the pocket and then you know actually be able to kind of climb that and and then throw um or or t- or use his legs or whatever and i i think that's something that you know, if we're not, if we're not talking about like statistical predictions or whatever, I'm just excited to see kind of combining that, that poise and a little bit, maybe quicker feet 
and slightly like a little bit quicker feet, a little bit more poise, a little bit stronger arm. And you put that together and it's like exponentially builds each one of those exponentially build on each other to make uh, a more complete quarterback. And obviously, you know, we've only seen him play four games versus four years of Jake Browning. So like, that's kind of, it's, it's obviously a, we can't say anything for certain after that, but based on what we have seen and what the evidence is from fall camp um, and what we just know of his skills so far, I think I, I'm just really excited to, to watch that, especially because it sounds like the offense, while it's not going to be like a bunch of spread concepts or anything, like they are opening it up and letting him kind of take control a little bit. It, the way that people are describing his, him within that offense and kind of the trust that the coaches have in him is, it sounds much more like they're talking about a quarterback who's in their third or fourth or fifth year of a program. I mean, I guess he is in his third year, but you know, as a starter, it's more than four games under. His yeah, team. not four <laughs> games. But yeah, the more I think about him, the more I am quite, quite excited to, to watch him play. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that some of what you were saying, it, it, it's, you're right that there's a natural comparison to Jake Browning because they're both slightly yeah. undersized, at least undersized for being guys who are primarily stay in the pocket, pass first quarterbacks. You know, if you're under six mm-hmm. um you know, a lot of those guys are are faster and more mobile quarterbacks. Uh, but you're right. They, I, I think physically Morris is a little more impressive. He's a, a sturdier body than Browning. Definitely. He should yeah, be able to definitely. hold up a little bit better under pressure. And he does have a little bit stronger arm. I, you know, I don't want to sleep on Browning because he had some outrageously good stats. And I, I would describe him almost as like a surgeon when he was at his best, that it was mm-hmm. – he knew exactly what he wanted to do and he could read the defense and he it was kind of like a, a chess player type of guy. And I think Morris has a long way to go to catch up with that. And I also think he's temperamentally a little different from what we've seen. Definitely. Anyway, he's more oh, yes, assertive and, and, and it manifests yeah. itself in the way they play. Like he's willing to be a little bit more aggressive, not necessarily meaning like I'm going to force this ball to somebody who can't catch it, but assertive in the sense that like, let's keep it going. Let's move down the field. Let's take a risk. Let's, let's air it out a little bit more, uh, things like that. And, and hopefully that, that, you know, comes up in the way that they play. I did. I really liked the, what he was saying to Christian Capel in the interview. He, he posted snippets or a few quotes about how he's seeing things faster. He can read the defense more easily. He, uh, is getting the ball out faster. He's able to shift his, uh, his his uh offensive protections and, and things like that and I feel like those are the kinds of things that allow the system to click into place for a quarterback because like totally yeah. Jake Locker Jacob Eason kind of a common thread for them was that they didn't really anticipate things well they were always kind of reacting and often reacting not fast enough and that put them a little bit behind in spite of their tremendous physical tools and I think it seems anyway early returns are that Dylan Morris is going to get over that hump which raises his ceiling significantly so I'm, I'm very excited about that uh, let's move out a little bit talk about some of his weapons they said he had a ton of skill position players Jalen McMillan has some kind of hand injury he had surgery on it um it that he's going to be out for a while as far as we know uh it seems like Taj Davis has been emerging kind of as that third guy alongside uh, Terrell Bynum and Romo Dunze, which is really exciting because he, he kind of been a forgotten man with, you know, the, some of the other recruits that came in ahead of and behind him who are more highly touted. He was the other guy in the Puka Nakua class. He's outlasted them. He had a monstrous scrimmage from what we've heard. He had something like 200 receiving yards in the scrimmage they played. How excited are you about what we're hearing about Taj Davis so far? And it's kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah, um, I think I'm I'm trying to temper my expectations just as far as the amount of usage he will get, um, because I, I think he kind of reminds me of the offensive version of Braylon Trice in that we were really just not had pretty minimal expectations going into the season. And then all of a sudden you're like hearing about him all the time. But I, I do feel like especially at from what I know of the scrimmage, I wasn't there. He got just a a bunch of snaps, which on one hand, that is great because that means that he's putting himself in a position by based on his performance for coaches to want to play him as often as possible. But we also know a lot of the 
uh, not a lot, but a handful of the more integral starters weren't playing. Um, so, you know, when they're in that picture, he'll get pushed down a little bit. And I also, I think I'm kind of expecting somewhat of a rotation of like 3A, 3B, maybe 3C or like a little four between like him and Jalen Polk and, um, you know, maybe, maybe um, Jackson at that point. But that is, I mean, certainly his emergence based on what we have there and from what we have heard about Jalen Polk and as a transfer coming in from Texas Tech, I think the fact we know that Davis hasn't emerged by default, but by like, if he's playing where he's playing and being brought up in practice reports, et cetera, it's because he's had to prove it in a room where he was not just put in a position based on lack of talent above him. So that is what I'm most excited about more so than, Oh, he had a lot of scrimmage yards or whatever. So he'll, therefore he'll be great. It's that he had a lot of scrimmage yards despite there being other guys who would have, who would have otherwise been kind of the default above him. The, the other thing I like just as far as his player profile is that he's, he's, he doesn't have like one trait that necessarily stands out as like, you know, super great or elite or whatever, but he doesn't have one weakness that really seems to stand out. He just seems like a very, a, a well-rounded target, which oftentimes regardless of sports honestly whether it's hockey football baseball whatever um tends to kind of make you go a little bit under the radar if you don't have one elite trait and you just have many rather good traits so that is something i've had in the back of my mind too um regarding davis and and how he could potentially be a contributor to this offense kind of true about Terrell Bynum too, which is interesting. Yeah. Two guys who can kind of do a lot of things pretty Mm -hmm. well, kind of like a a pair of Bobby Abreu's. That's a good point. (laughs) I remember, I think Bill James wrote something about how like Bobby Abreu is criminally underrated because he's very good at everything, but great at nothing. And that is an archetype that often gets overlooked because you don't Mm -hmm. show up on the, you know, leaderboard, but you don't have any weaknesses. Uh, And I think that's a good point about opportunity because not only are you know he's he's probably even as well as he's reportedly played still a step below Bynum and Odunze on the depth chart McMillan from what we know will probably be back at some point during the year uh and then you know we also run a lot of two tight end sets or we have an mm-hmm. H back in the game and we're, we're using three and four receivers less often than most teams so that's a reduced a smaller pie and he still has to get a piece of that pie, but it does help in terms of depth. You know, those top two guys aren't going to play every snap and it's good to have somebody else to slide in. If one of them gets hurt and we get even thinner, having somebody with real upside is great. Uh, The one playing time question, I guess Davis qualifies here to some extent because we didn't expect him to be uh, even getting that number of snaps. But the thing that seems like we've got a real change on the depth chart is that left guard, which we did talk about last time we recorded about how MJ Ale was probably the most susceptible offensive lineman to having to being displaced. It sounds like that happened pretty quickly in camp. One of the first days uh, Julius Bulow took over at left guard. Uh, One of the things we talked about was how there wasn't this obvious successor uh, at guard since we have this physical profile of having the true monsters on the interior of the line and guys with a little more mobility on the outside. But Bulow does qualify. I, I think we were talking about mm-hmm. Mateo Mele and maybe a couple other guys as maybe Rosengarten as possible uh, replacements for Ali if he struggled. Uh, Bulow definitely fits the profile. He's 6'8", 330 is his listed height and weight. Not as big as Ali, which is, you know, Titanic, but he's still gargantuan if that's the right order of those things. Uh, do you have any, any feelings about that change or any expectations about what to see, what would look different having uh, Bulow in the lineup? Um, I, I, my gut is that it won't look like, I don't think that will like fundamentally change anything, but it is kind of similar to Davis where I'm like, he, especially knowing that our coaching staff, at least under Pete and to an extent under Jimmy too, I would assume until proven otherwise, tends to err on the side of giving the benefit of the doubt to returning starters, some to reasonably so to the um, annoyance of some fans. So you do know 
again similar to davis that like if mulo is there he has made a significant case for himself and i also for what it's worth i remember last episode we recorded mentioning like roger rosengarten even though he obviously is like a tackle and not a guard being kind of like the of the underclass like true underclassmen being like kind of the first guy that pops into my mind but yeah i definitely it was like kind of as far as that left guard spot was kind of nate Filippo or julius bulo were like obviously the two most prototypical for that position and as bulo especially i mean he's a he's a monster (laughs) he's so i can't imagine a human being that's that big and obviously you know looking at someone going he's big so he'll be great is (laughs) stupid but uh i mean if you're replacing mj ali with somebody who's slightly uh slimmer uh, i can't imagine calling a 330 pound person slim in any other context but if you're replacing mj ali with somebody who's slightly slimmer um, but is still like a monster i mean you don't have to worry about him being overpowered from a size perspective maybe from a leverage perspective being so tall but my gut would be that there's an improvement in feet there since that kind of quickness was something that seemed to maybe be a weakness on at that position last year so i i'm just excited because that's not you know that the benefit again the benefit of the doubt with the starters for this coaching staff under the last seven years or whatever the heck means that he has to he has to have looked like a pretty clear upgrade for him to even get that opportunity yeah i think that's that makes sense and if you know we aren't in practice every day even if we were i'm not sure we would be in a great position to evaluate like the finer points of which left guard is uh distinguishing himself yeah Uh, but like he he was a significant prospect he was a four-star recruit he was part of that really good 2019 recruiting class uh also had uh nate Kalepo in it so it was a really strong offensive line class there's a lot of fanfare around him when we signed him so it's these are all positive things and seeing him get on the field relatively quickly you know obviously he had that extra year uh with very little happening last year and no eligibility burned up to work on his body and to get a little bit more practice experience it's exciting that he's developed this quickly and if they are seeing good things if this is another case like what you said with Taj that he's not just being forced into the lineup because of weaknesses in front of him but he's actually earning it that's a very positive thing Let's talk a little bit uh, about the other side of the football on defense. Uh, work, kind of work from the back forward. Uh, another uh, position battle that we talked about before was at safety. And, and again, according to Christian Capel, it sounds like we've got fairly well-established number ones at this point, those being Cam Williams and Julius Irvin, backed up at least most frequently by Alex Cook and Dom Hampton and then Asa Turner behind them. Uh, we talked a fair amount about Irvin last time about how coming back from the injuries uh, he he's had some time in the program. He is a physical specimen and he hasn't had the health to put it all together. Williams is an interesting case to me. We talk, we kind of assume players are going to have fairly linear development. He went from being a day one starter, true freshman starter, uh, lost his job later in his freshman year to Turner played kind of sporadically as part of a rotation last year. And now another year passes and it looks like he's back in the starting lineup, which is a really interesting kind of sign curve of career development. Very different than what you would assume would happen. And Turner kind of going in the opposite direction, taking the job away and now seemingly being demoted or, or uh, leapfrogged down to the third team. What are your thoughts on, on Williams and Irvin looking like the first choice pair and, and the rest of that depth chart as we're seeing it right now? Yeah, Irvin, I'm, I think the most, I'm most excited about Irvin because it, this was always just a matter of him getting healthy and, you know, fulfilling that potential. Cause he wasn't even, a, he, it, usually when you talk about a prospect get, reaching their potential, it's about somebody who like Dom Hampton, who w- had a very high ceiling, but a low floor and was kind of a project, but Julie Servin was never a project. He could have probably come in and contributed pretty significantly from the get-go, but he had really just shitty injury luck so I'm just excited because like finally we got a healthy Julius Irvin who also has also has been healthy enough to like just be fully integrated in the program for like a reasonable length of time for the first time and and so that to me 
my gut is um, happiness over that. And then I think I totally I think you made a really good point about Cam Williams because. I mean, it could it could very well be the fact that, you know, he ends up a starter alongside Irvin and still has the same issues with mediocre angles on tackling or on balls in the air. Um, That's like totally could be a thing. And then he could still be uh, sometimes a great player and sometimes a liability. But I do think I mean, even I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast at one point played a sport in their life even if it was for three years when you were 10. And, and I mean, I think back to a, just even just playing like not super competitive sports as an adult or back playing like softball when I was 15. And like, there is remembering how development works. I think as fans, we can get kind of disconnected from that because it really is like you have clicking moments And then you have moments when you're trying to get better, where you get worse for a little bit in that pathway, because you have to rearrange both your neurons and the way that your body interprets all that. And it's, it's like, it's, it really isn't linear. So I think there is a very real possibility that either Cam Williams is just as he was, and there's just no, you know, Dom Hampton didn't ascend to be consistently at a level where he could beat him out. And we just have Cam Williams by default, but there also is the option or possibility that we have maybe gotten a little bit too inelastic in our, in our remembrance of how development works. And he has taken that next step and kind of the struggles he had was just a part of that process. So I don't really know in other words to answer. I don't know, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a one gut reaction one way or the other, but I am happy that, you know, for the first time in a hot minute, there was a real like glut of safeties. There was a real safety competition. So kind of like with the Taj Davis thing, it isn't by default, although it, you know, he obviously had again, more of that benefit of the doubt as a returning part-time starter kind of, you could say, but it's, it's still not, not a default. Oh, well, we don't have anyone really better behind you. So I guess, (laughs) Um, and if, if nothing else, I think Julius Irvin, if he's, at a, you know, closer to his ceiling than not, I think that will help Cam Davis too. Cause the last two years has really been, it doesn't help if you're still learning on the job to have someone else next to you who's learning on the job or who has a limited ceiling and, and can't really fill that partnership role. So I, I think that's something to keep in mind too. I, I think another thing with Williams that has probably damaged his reputation with fans, and I think this this is true for me, so I call myself out on it, that his mistakes or the things where he was yeah. weakest were so visible. Like, yeah, the, the few blown coverages. And, and I mean, even if he had blown a coverage or missed a tackle and it resulted in, you know, an incomplete pass and you say, oh man, could have got burned on that one. It's like every time he screwed up, it was a touchdown. Uh, and they were mistakes. And, but those are the kind of things that you kind of expect from a true freshman uh, forced into duty probably before they would want him there. And if he can clean those things up, which is exactly the messaging you've heard from the coaches talking about him, that he knows when to uh, rein in his aggression a little bit more. If he can make those decisions better, he has great physical tools. He's, mm-hmm. he's very quick. He's very, he's got plenty of size. He hits very hard. Uh, seems I have pretty good ball skills. So if he can clean up those really, really visible mistakes, uh, the rest of it seems like he's on a pretty good footing. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's something to be said about like safety is a really difficult position to like get better at without fans noticing what you have to get better at first, because it is like, you can't really screw up there um, with impunity. Well, the other side of it, I guess, would be somebody who doesn't ever take a risk and like they're always there to make the shore tackle and they're in the area, but they never make an interception. Mm-hmm. They keep everything in front of them to a fault where they're not breaking up passes. And that's not good either, but it's not going to stand out in the same way. It's not going to like make us pull our hair out because yeah. the guy, you know, undercut a route and got beat for a 70 yard touchdown. Um, mm-hmm. So you'd be like oh that guy's steady eddie but like he's (laughs) still killing the team but yeah i think that's part of the reason williams maybe gets a little maybe a little underrated we'll see we talked about how there there's kind of a a glut of safeties and this competition the opposite has been true at at inside linebacker and opposite in a couple ways one way is that 
the two starters have been pretty well entrenched that we've ha- we have Ulafosho and Sermon back from last year. They've always looked like they're most likely to start out as the pair on the inside. There's a lot of talk about what would happen behind them with Daniel Hamuli like push Sermon for more playing time got hurt. We don't know what the time frame for him coming back is going to look like, but it seems like it's not an overnight thing. Uh, so that's, you're basically left with MJ Tafisi behind the, that starting pair. And then it's a bunch of, you know, guys who are probably not ready to play yet or walk-ons Drew Fowler, Ben Hines, Carson Bruner, these names exciting, probably not at this point. Uh, lots of uncertainty there. What would you, how would you describe your stress level around that group? Yeah, not great. <laughs> not great, Bob. Um, yeah, I mean, it, uh, I was just about to say, well, it could be worse. Um, yeah, it's mostly the depth more than anything, like it, in case of injury, because like, obviously, you know, at this point, Sermon, uh, he's at a point in his career here where he could, he could get better. And it sounds, he, it sounds like from fall camp that he is, he is a little bit quicker to the ball and to diagnose than he has been in the past, but that's still, he was pretty slow in that regards oftentimes last year, but yeah, but, but more than that, it's like, if one of those guys, God forbid gets injured and also just the rotation aspect of the inside linebackers, like obviously they're not rotating to like with the frequency that the interior defensive linemen, for example, are rotating, but you're still, I'm thinking about like if you're like late in the third quarter or fourth quarter when you have to rotate those guys like especially a, a dude like Sermon and Tafizi are both like they're more thumpers than they are like sideline to sideline fast guys which is something that I was excited about with Haimuli because uh, he's kind of quicker you know quicker than them even if he wasn't maybe as much of a, a thumper at least at the college level although who knows he could be and so when you're thinking about like body types and player types that you really want to be able to keep fresh uh at inside linebacker it's those because <laughs> yeah I mean um I, cer- I certainly hope obviously this is going to sound like the dumbest thing I've ever said I certainly hope that uh Haimuli can get healthy sooner rather than later the good news is that it doesn't look like a surgery thing but it sounds like he's still kind of not you know it's still gonna last at least a while i i kind of got the sense from some stuff that alfonso tupatala like he's not going to be back imminently but it's not like maybe he'll be back that he'll be back sooner than Haimuli. you know again really who knows so that will just make me breathe a little bit easier just simply to have those bodies i i guess the one good thing is drew fowler um, even though he's a walk-on was like a guy who had multiple Pac-12 offers and was somebody who, as far as walk-ons go, was a huge, huge get. He was as highly recruited of a prospect. He was more highly recruited of a, pro- of a prospect than like, for example, the linebackers we got in the 2015 class of like BBK and Tavis Bartlett whatever. So like he's, he should be more than serviceable. Like he should be totally fine as far as what you're looking at. But yeah, it, it is a little bit, a little bit scary. <laughs> Yeah, I, and and Fowler, that that's fair, that's true. He had I just looked it up. UCLA and Utah offers. He's also uh, still quite young, and you'd probably want him to have a little bit more time sure, uh, yeah. as, as a walk on. Uh, it is it is scary, uh, but yeah, I, I've always said we talked about this way more than either of us wanted to last year. That Sermon looked worse than he was because he wasn't getting much support in front of him. That it was just too easy for interior offensive linemen to get to the second level and knock him off of his spot. Definitely. He could react with improved play from a more experienced uh, inside defensive line. I think he'll look a lot more competent. I don't think he'll ever be a star, but I think he can be a a valid, acceptable uh, starter on a team like this. And I don't think it has to be uh, like a a festering, gaping wound of a position (laughs) if they get the right support around it. But, you know, any more little uh, somebody gets the wind knocked out of them in in the first game and things start to look pretty ugly. So hopefully we'll have some coverage there. One thing, if you take a step back from the discussion we've been having so far that struck me as interesting about the reporting and the coverage of fall camp is it seems like there's been a fairly steady trajectory of scrimmages, drills, whatever, the offense getting the better of the defense, which 
I can't remember the last time that happened. It was probably like early Steve Sarkeesian era era when we were going through camp and the offense looked more ready than the defense. Does that make you feel uh, any different going into this year? Does it make, I mean, I, I will say this, the fact that we're seeing this immediately after uh, we lost our awesome defensive coordinator and replaced him with somebody with a lot of question marks does make me a little bit nervous. Is that, is that a fair concern or is this just more like experience level and, and something you think will get straightened out uh, relatively quickly? I think there, that I would, I would be lying if that thought hadn't crossed into the back of my head. Um, Although even for what it's worth, even like my Oregon frenemies at addicted to quack at the quack 12 podcast, like even they fully, like I, uh, I went on their podcast probably three or four months ago and even they were like yeah your guys's defense kind of runs itself at this point so it, 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 and like but yeah like the whole like oh wow the offense looks good like that's amazing oh yay and then thinking about like oh shit I hope this is because the offense is amazing right um, yeah. like I'd be lying if that didn't cross my head a couple times but I think two things one it's we lost him and while that does matter like again the defense does to an extent kind of run itself but more than that it's like you don't have any uh like we have so many returning veterans who are really good competition for the offense regardless of what you know regardless of what the who the dc is that that gives me confidence that it is really more the offense actually genuinely being good um for uh, the first time in fall and during fall camp since like no literally since I think before Chris Peterson yeah <laughs> um, I was yeah. just like racking my brain there for two seconds and I can um couldn't think of anything and especially the other thing is there's been a lot of from Christian Cable and Mike Varel there have been legit descriptions of some of the throws um that have or like t- either whether they're touchdowns or just good passes by Dylan Morris and a lot of it they've gone out of their way to be like it to mention you know it was good coverage or and he just sipped it right through or there was a contested catch and like Odunse or Racknelli or whoever was able to like just hang on um and I think they're considering the amount of like vivid descriptions that have been given of the offense beating the defense it it doesn't sound like for the most part it sounds like it has been against very in very difficult circumstances that have been put onto the offense by the defense at fall camp. Um, Cause I feel like we've heard a hundred times about some tight throw Morris made between two safeties that were right there or like right over a, a corner who's in, you know, on the guy's hip or a contested catch being made that we don't usually see or haven't seen for a while consistently. So when you kind of combine all those things, I think it's more likely than not that that the offense actually is clicking in a way that it hasn't in fall camp, at least for a very, very hot minute. So yeah, I'm yeah. tentatively quite excited. And our, our offensive coaching staff has changed too. So maybe that's, you know, if it's an indictment of the defense, maybe it's a compliment of the offense. That is kind of the Rorschach test of mm-hmm. uh, intra-squad scrimmages. It really is, that, yeah. Like if one side of the ball is doing well, the other side is doing poorly. And is that good or bad news or both uh, in every case? One thing, I'm going to talk about something a little bit different for a minute, is just un, uh, unequivocally good news is over the weekend, there was the launch of the home field UW line. Uh, home field, you probably are aware, if you read our blog, we talked about it a lot over the weekend. Uh, they, it's a vintage college apparel company. Uh, they launched their UW collection as part of the big new Saturday campaign over the weekend. Uh, they, they gave us and everybody else who used it with uh, 15% off if they use the code dog pound, which is easy to remember because it's the name of our website. Uh, I already have three of the shirts. Uh, I'm very excited about them. Uh, I, they're super comfortable. They're super soft. It's that uh, whatever blend of cotton that they started making shirts out of like five years ago that's so much more comfortable uh, than any other shirts. Uh, I'm very excited about this. I'm definitely going to be wearing them for the first couple of football games this year. Did you get any of your shirts yet, Gaby? How excited are I you did. about these home field shirts? I did. I'm sad that I don't think we didn't get to uh... – yeah, I got a, I got the um, 
sun dodger one with like the old old first off put a pin in that old college logos are psychotic i love (laughs) them but it's like this little boy he's like this little dutch child i mean we all know the logo i'm talking about like with yeah. the sun dodgers little boy he looks like he's it. made out of ceramic yeah he looks like he's gonna haunt you a lawn or ornament yeah 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 it comes alive ornament. and murders you with a hatchet in your sleep anyway so i'm gonna have that to wear now um yeah i am sad though because they they sent us uh they sent us a free one and but we didn't get to choose and i there's not like a bad design but I had like two in mind that I really wanted and I didn't get that. So I'm a little bit sad. I was a little bit but, disappointed. I wanted the the tank top with the, it had a same. very cool logo and it sold out by the time I went on the website oh, shit, on Saturday. Really? It was, it was go- at least in my size, uh, okay. which is probably the most common size that uh, men's tank tops get sold in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, they have, there, there are 14 designs. I, I wrote something on the on Twitter about how you could kind of just like go in blind and pick any three of them. And they, you'd probably be happy with them. Uh, and, and yeah, that's, that's how I, I feel about it. I'm definitely going to gravitate to these, you know, any day that uh, my daughter doesn't forcibly make me put on my Cookie Monster shirt that I'm wearing right now uh, when I get oh, done with work. I was wondering about work. that. Yeah. Uh, every day I get done with work and she grabs me and she goes, Cookie shirt, Cookie shirt. Uh, Your but daughter's my she's hero. Gonna, yeah, she's going to have to change that. Uh, she's going to have to get used to the, uh, washing shirts. They don't make kid sizes yet, but once they do, I'll buy her some of that too. Uh, let's take a quick break for some more official and professionally done advertisements, and we'll come back on the other side and we'll talk about the rest of the Pac-12 and the Alliance. Thanks for sticking around. We are going to talk about some relatively late-breaking news, uh, which is the Alliance of the Pac-12, the Big Ten, and the ACC coming together to do undetermined things. They're going to look each other in the eyes. They're going to trust each other and they're going to protect each other's interests, uh, which I think is also the plot of a show that's getting released on Netflix this fall. Do you have any reaction to this initial news? I know we talked before about ways Washington could respond and Pac-12 could respond to realignment. And of all the possible options, this doesn't seem like a particularly bad one. But for me, it's a little bit hard to judge because there's not a lot of there there. It's just kind of yeah. fluffy, empty words right now. Yeah, I think um, before I say anything else, I think this is by far the thing that I would most want to happen. If you didn't listen to the last episode, you can listen to it and I will have explained it in what was an unplanned rant that's Andrew's fault because he got me fired up simply because it, it, I mean again I don't I'm not going to go into why but um first off I think Nicole Auerbach from the athletic put it really well that I'm actually going to see if I can go find her tweet right now that pretty much if you were looking for a 41 team super conference or whatever which obviously nobody thought literally that was going to happen but that was like all super you know, integrated and had all their stuff totally corresponding. Like this, that was never going to be what this was. Okay, I'm going to find right now. Okay, so what she said, an alliance was never going to create a 41 member super conference. It's about aligning on policy and governance issues and doing uh, asterisk something to try to provide checks and balances across college sports. And I think, and then she says, now we'll see what it does in the coming months and years. And I think that's the best, I think that's the best take that has been had and and you could say like well it doesn't say anything really but i i think there is a sense of like we really don't know how like you kind of pointed out it's a a little bit fluffy like they said they didn't sign a contract it's just a gentleman's agreement and i do hope for what it's worth uh, i do hope at some point they do sign a contract um at least for scheduling or something but um i think just having that understanding of knowing like that we are not, at least in theory, not going to be kind of playing this musical chairs with each other because that's just going to um, fasten like the erosion of what college football is. I'm happy that that's a thing. A, I do want, I do want, and I expect more concrete stuff to come from that. We already have concrete things that came out about scheduling for men's and women's basketball from that um like that was released today with football it's more complicated because as they said like teams aren't going to 
you were, we're not trying to get teams aren't going to try to get necessarily um, out of contracts to play out of conference games already. Um, although it has been brought up that, you know, big 10 and PAC 12, and I don't know if the ACC plays eight or nine games. I think they play nine um, that they will go down to eight conference games theoretically, and then can start. So start doing this non-conference scheduling sooner. I think it does. It, the, the main worry I think everyone really did that double take there, at least on Twitter, about when Klievkov and the Big Ten and ACC commissioners were like, uh, said, no, no, there's no contract. It's just a gentleman's agreement. And they kind of went in depth, uh, not in depth, but they like elaborated on like, uh, I think it was the Big Ten commissioner on like, if you don't, if you need to sign a contract with someone, then you probably shouldn't be working with them in the first place. And I'm like, ooh, is that how... uh, is that what we think about that? Because, it makes um, me think of that part in Tommy Boy where he, he keeps trying to say, like, you can get a good look at a steak by sticking your hand up a butcher's ass, but I, <laughs> and he keeps getting it wrong, I think I think is what he was trying to get yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and so I, I if anything goes wrong, obviously it will be there. It, I mean, as someone pointed out, like, is that not what Oklahoma and Texas – I mean, they had a contract and they still, you know, you can always – if there's nothing there to, to be binding, like you can always go behind there, there it is just a matter of trust, but I, 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 there is something to be said though, also about like in college football, it's such a high, it's, it's such a high revenue business that like, if one of these teams or conferences or whatever really wanted to get out of anything, they would do so whether there's a contract or not. Now, obviously I still want them to, whether it's for non-conference games or whatever, like I, we should hope for a contract of the uh, defining some, you know, parameters in the future, but just knowing at least for now that, that we do have some understanding between these three conferences is I think a really, really big deal because until they were at least whether they, they stay together forever or whatever, um, which I'm not naive enough to think this will go perfectly, is, is if they were still harboring or if they were still living in an environment where it is all but explicitly comp- competing with each other for that seat, it's whether your team benefits from that now or not, whether you get that seat in the short term, it is it, every, every time something like that happens, every step towards that is a slowly degrading what college, college, just college football in general. And I, I, the alternative was pretty much do nothing, which is not a good idea or combine these conferences. And I think, you know, like, again, with my, rant um last episode i think which i think was a naive uh, a naive and un uh, at, at, at best a naive and um not very comprehensive look at what is in these conferences and at worst a cynical power grab um, so i think just to have some semblance of working together is kind of the best that we could hope for at least for the time being and I hope they do build upon that to make something that is whether it's like contractual or whatever yeah I I I I, I'm tentatively optimistic even though there's plenty to make fun of from their press conference and stuff they said and gentlemen's agreement and whatever but um this was overall as far as the courses of action this is I think what I would prefer next to the other options that I'd heard floated out there. If you have a better idea though, um, I'm all yours. So. No, I think it's a, a good first step. Like you said, it, it gets us out of the position of poaching from each other or you know, being subject of poaching attempts. And I think any kind of agreement, con- contractual or otherwise, it will be as, will, will remain in effect as long as it's more valuable for the parties to it to continue in the agreement than to leave it. Same thing with, you know, Texas and Oklahoma have a contract with the Big 12, but they're leaving because it's they're going to make more money by leaving than they would have by staying. 
Uh, and if we get to a point where it's no longer financially valid, you know, if something happens where suddenly the, the PAC 12 is incredibly flush with revenue and it doesn't make sense for them to play non-conference games against the ACC, I wouldn't want them to continue doing that. So it's, you know, having that, uh, opportunity is, is valuable. I think there are three kind of broad areas where they can work together in more practical terms. One is scheduling. I'd love to see every team from every, every team from these conferences play one non-conference game a year against each of the other two conferences. I, I think that's, mm-hmm. it's a, you do a home and home, you can do different ways of waiting it. So you have like teams near the top of the, um, the schedule playing each other, uh, do a home and home year after year. So maybe like one year we play at Iowa and versus North Carolina. And the next year we play versus Iowa and at North Carolina, and then it rotates to something else the next year. Um, Second thing, and that doesn't have to start right away because like you said, there are obligations in the shorter term. The second thing is they talked about voting alignment on competitive issues, things like uh, college football playoff expansion. I I was a little uh, put off by the fact that they were, seemingly pretty willing to embrace a 12 team playoff maybe, yeah, maybe it, was, it just seemed weird because it's like what's the point of doing this if you're going to still seed power to allow the sec to have way more representatives at the in the tournament uh and kind of delegitimize your conference uh season which is seems to be what you have uh going against them uh but we'll see how that turns out and then the third thing being i, I think you alluded to kind of policy alignment like if they can come up with a uh more comprehensive set of expectations. For example, uh, we were all kind of waiting for the NCAA to wade in on uh, name, image, and likeness and uh, like player compensation changes and nothing ever really happened. But if this alliance can can offer that sort of leadership and clarity of thought, uh, it would be super valuable. And that actually would be a competitive advantage over the SEC or any other conference if we can kind of come up with some player-friendly guidelines uh, that put us at the forefront of, of that market of that group. And I think that would be uh, a, a, probably the best possible outcome from this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think you pretty much just were way more concise and articulate <laughs> than, <laughs> than what I, but yeah, I totally, totally agree. Yeah. Let's spend a couple minutes before we wrap up, just talking about kind of touching around the PAC 12. Uh, it seems like Oregon's getting a lot of love as the PAC 12 North favorite uh, in our Slack today. Our editor, Max, pointed out that Stuart Mandel uh, picked Oregon to continue their dominance of the Pac-12 North, despite the fact that they've won one out of the last six uh, (laughs) Pac-12 North titles. Uh, Is it fair for them to be considered a clear favorite over UW? They're breaking in a new or newish quarterback. They still do have a ton of skill position talent. CJ Verdell is awesome, and Johnny Johnson is really good, and the list goes on. Uh, do you think they deserve the status as favorites, or do you think it should kind of, you know, obviously we're looking at this uh, from a pretty biased perspective, but do you think it would be more reasonable for the national media to be treating this as more of a 50-50 uh, division? Uh, yes, that. <laughs> I think um... – uh, like obviously they and reasonably so they've gotten a lot of attention for being you know hauling in a lot of uh, you know being good on the recruiting trail um, and but they are a team that got like lost to Oregon State and Cal which granted Cal and Oregon State like Oregon State is an improvement from where they were a few years ago and Cal is as we all know we can't like shit on anyone for losing to Cal because they're a pain in the butt that does that to us all the time. And then they, I think they lost in their bowl game too. Right. I don't know. Either way. Um, I have no memory of their bowl game. Know. It's very I strange. I really, yeah. Are we I sure it ever happened? I checked out of bowl season year. last year. What was I saying? Um, I, I think I'm, I'm for what it's worth, like saying that about Oregon. Um, I also think it's totally reasonable to have, questions about wazoo too if you're like a national media guy oh yeah uh, producer colin just messages they lost or iowa state on their bowl which is i can't much, believe i forgot about that, that was, it was like was, the high point was, of the year when we became yeah. an iowa state blog and then they ended up beating oregon in the uh, yeah. rose bowl yeah that bowl that sounded in. familiar to me but i didn't want to say it without knowing for sure um uh what was i saying fiesta bowl yeah fiesta so bowl. i mean when you look at like when you look at their their performance relative to their talent it's one thing, I think there's this weird disconnect of like, they're recruiting so 
people giving them a lot of credit for recruiting well, rightfully so. And then being like, okay, so they're going to rule the North or whatever, which is a fair to connect those. It's fair to connect those. But to then talk about, okay, if they're recruiting that well, then they're losing to Oregon State, Cal, and Iowa State, who are at least in Oregon State and Iowa State and Cal, for what it's worth, just not to the same uh, magnitude. Those are all teams that are vastly outperforming their talent level. But like, if you have, if you're so getting so much love for having such a high talent level, then what does that say? And, and granted, you know, their recruiting levels have improved the last couple of classes. So they're relatively young, but it's not like they were recruiting dog shit in 2017 and 2018. Um, like, so, and, and I hope if I, I'm sure somebody will listen to this, that's an Oregon fan just to like hate listen. And I'm not, if you want to get pissy at me, I mean, please don't. <laughs> like I'm not I'm not saying this from like a from like a I hate Oregon perspective like I I I am like frenemies with the quack 12 guys I do enjoy them very much um and I find it very important to not be a total homer about these kind of things I think honestly I I feel like the Pac-12 North it should be won by Washington or Oregon it should be won by one of the two but Oregon Oregon has enough questions about on field being able to play consistently on field for 12 games and UW has enough questions about uh, you know if you're looking at like inside linebackers opposite Eddie Lafocio like linebacker depth whether that offense can take another step with John Donovan still and like losing Pete Kowski like between Oregon having that and UW having this like they both have enough question marks where if Cal or probably not Stanford but you know I guess Cal there's enough theoretical opportunities for another team to kind of be a dark horse in the Pac-12 North if Oregon and Washington both don't live up to like how they should play. So I think this idea that that Oregon is I mean, I, I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> the, yeah, the, I yeah. think I, I, maybe a, a, a summation of that is I think the media poll, Oregon got something like 75 or 80 percent of the first place votes in the Pac-12 North. Uh, are they, and I initially posed this question of whether they should be prohibitive favorites or more like a toss up. So are they closer to 80% likely to win the North or 50% likely to win the North? I'd say the numbers are significantly closer to 50 and I'm not yeah. even sure it's above 50. Um, if you factor in the other teams, like you just said, things going wrong. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's hating on them. I think they're extremely talented. I do hate them, but I think they're really good. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, how I feel too. Yeah. It's like, it's not hating on them. I hate them, but I'm not hating on them. Yeah. I think it's uh, much I, I closer hate to them 50, with a healthy 50. respect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ooh, would we say that, I respect them? That was, no, gonna, be, yeah. that was gonna be my, my, follow-up question actually when you you said it's possible for one of these other teams I think you kind of hinted that Cal might be your answer I was going to ask who you think would be the third team of the the north who has a chance to kind of push their way into that conversation yeah I think um I said Cal kind of by default although that would take for one for a team that's not Oregon or Washington to win like I alluded to like it would take Oregon and Washington underperforming for sure um it, and I think I think if someone if someone's going to take advantage of that it, it would probably be Cal just because Justin Wilcox is kind of like Pete Light as far as you know a consistent defense that can keep them in stuff and uh, coaching guys up to outperform their talent level um and Chase Garbers is like he's not an elite quarterback but he is a returning veteran who's been there for you know ever and is good enough with that defense to to get it done so they would probably be my first bet just because Stanford is has been so stagnant and they lost Davis Mills which granted I wasn't that impressed with Davis Mills to begin with but um, even though he beat us um, yeah he was yeah he was like good what he could be and not other times um, even though we lost to him twice, but I think Jack, Jack West was their guy behind him. And then Tanner McKee, the, the Mormon guy from, I think Corona, California, who took that two-year mission after the class of 2018. Um, so it's kind of down to those two. And my memory is West was pretty not great when he took over. Um, <laughs> so if I'm a Stanford fan, based on what I remember, not as somebody who follows Stanford, I would probably want McKee to win that battle. I guess, so like, I guess Stanford, I don't think, I don't want to say I, we already, I already was not 
so nice to Oregon that I don't want to say something else about arrival, but I feel like I feel like Wazoo it would take a lot, but they could not if Jarrett if Jarrett Gorantano wins the quarterback job, then they can't. I don't think um, based on my memory of him at Tennessee. Yeah. Um, if Delora he was quite bad at Tennessee, he was pretty not great. Um, if Delora if Delora wins that quarterback job, then um, you know they'll be kind of the same as last year. I think they're probably going to end up anywhere from. I, I think I, now that I'm thinking about it, I really the Pac-12 North is the teams that aren't Oregon and Washington all feel quite like there's a pretty 3A, obvious 3B, 3C, 3D. Yeah. Like they're all very, there's a lot of parody there. And I think Oregon state, I've said this for a couple of years now that like they are, especially with what they've improved, like their talent level from the transfer portal. Um, you know, yeah. they could, they could do what they did last year and kind of screw some more people up, but on a full 12 game schedule, I mean, they yeah. had one game that they lost decisively last year. They went two and five, but they're yeah. lo- they lost at Husky Stadium by six, and they could have won that game. You know, mm-hmm. they may have won it if that one fourth down spot went in their favor. I don't want to like <laughs> relitigate that. <laughs> yeah, uh, they lost by six at Utah. They lost by three against Stanford. Uh, they lost by ten against Wazoo, and then yeah, uh, kind of. Gave, out, gave it up against Arizona State. But I think defensively, they still have a ways to go. But I do think uh, Smith has done a really good job there. And you're right Definitely, that they've yeah. elevated the, the talent level and they have more playmakers. It, it wouldn't shock me if they, you know, kind of like fell into a five and four record and finished third in the North, mm-hmm. or maybe even Same. second if something yeah. went super wrong for one of the other teams near the top. But I, I, I'm, I, it, you're right. It's, it's pretty easy to find fault with any of those yeah. teams. And I want to do. Oh yeah, oh, go one ahead. more. I was just gonna say, and there's like, there's plenty. There's no team that's flawless in the north, but there's also no team that you look at and you're like, wow, that's dog shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> so for I, there is no clear one or clear number six. Right. There's no Arizona, and there's yeah. no Utah. Uh, let's actually, we've gone a little long. Let's save the South <laughs> for our next preseason. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, discussion. We'll be talking about this again soon. Let's move into our recommendations and plugs section. Uh, anything you got to start with? Uh, no, I have a reverse plug and I realize there's no way phrasing. Um, but are we still um, doing phrasing? Are we still doing phrasing anymore? Uh, but, uh, uh, couple, last episode, I think it was, I was like, Hey, come to Charlotte, September 9th and 11th, uh, for the Queen City Comedy Festival. Cause I will be there. Um, no, I will not because that has been postponed, which um, I am, I am fine with, um, so, so don't go there, you know, all our listeners in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, before we started recording, I mentioned that I had a bunch of Canadians down here for a wedding this weekend. And so, or this week, last week. So I haven't watched or read or listened to, oh, wait, I do have something. I do have something Listen to. Okay. Um, the bugle is a podcast by, uh, with it's a British podcast. It's a, uh, audio newspaper for a visual world. Um, it's Andy Zaltzman, who's a, a British comedian. And um, I have started to very much appreciate it. And if you're a fan of, I was going to say, if you're a fan of British comedy, you'll enjoy it as a uh, um, whatever is, is a thing. But honestly, I don't, I just don't understand how you couldn't enjoy it because it's just like, he has usually has some comedians on and they just go over uh, the news, but in a way where in a way where you don't end up necessarily just pissed and sad and defeated, even if they're talking about stuff that's super depressing. Somehow you uh, it doesn't for me anyway, it doesn't like take away, take more mental bandwidth than I have to listen to. Uh, that so I'm not gonna primarily get my news that way but it is it is a nice way to get a little bit of respite from how terrible the news is always <laughs> so I'll go I'll go with the bugle that's that sounds pretty cool uh, I two things quickly uh, I recently watched something that it wasn't even new uh, there's a, a documentary on Amazon Prime called Beats Rhymes in Life that's just a, like chronicles the career of a tribe called Quest which is one of the greatest hip-hop groups of all time and it's, it's actually made by Michael Rappaport which I didn't realize at first but it has that kind of weird frenetic energy that he has um I, I kind of watched it in the background last week and 
it's one of those things that you don't have to pay super close attention to, but you, you know, like, Oh, they're playing, you know, like, uh, like scenario. Like here's the story behind that song. And it's like, you kind of come in and out and it's awesome. The other thing I read a, a, a interesting book, if you're into kind of like true crime and serial killer stuff, it's a nonfiction book by uh, a former FBI profiler named John Douglas called the killer across Ooh. the table. And he's the, he invented, uh, FBI behavioral profiling in the seventies. Uh, and there's a, the show Mindhunter on net Netflix is based on his career. Uh, and this is, I guess he's written a few books, but this is using four or five, uh, specific serial killers that he interviewed and profiled as case studies to elaborate on his behavioral profiling. And it's grisly and it's disgusting, but it's one of those things that's like, you definitely want to keep reading it as you go. So I was, uh, I was very into yeah. that. That sounds kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. He's, he's a compelling writer too. Cool. All right. So we're a week closer to football season. I think that means we're a week closer to being joined by Cody Pickett. Cody himself. Pickett? We're that much closer. Uh, so thanks again for listening and go dogs. Go dogs. And go buy some home field stuff. That too. Dog pound promo code 15% off. Beta sound called.